This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome or welcome back to Self-Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford, a psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I started Self-Work over four years ago in order to extend the walls of my practice to those of you who might already be quite comfortable with emotional or psychological issues but would love another perspective, to those of you who've just been diagnosed with anxiety or depression or you're having some kind of relationship problem you're struggling with, but also to a third group. To those of you who really don't know much about therapy, except you'll say, oh, I'd never darken the door of one of those people. Well, I'm one of those people, and I hope you're curious enough today to listen to self-work. I'm glad all of you are here. You know, if there's ever been a time when we need to manage our emotions, it's now. None of us are sure what these next few months will bring. In fact, even all of 2021, and that's true on many fronts. So this week's podcast is on managing your feelings, or what's termed emotional intelligence in psychology. And here's a working definition, the capacity to be aware of, control, and express one's emotions, and to handle interpersonal relationships judiciously and empathically. There are several aspects to it which we'll go over, and each one of them could actually be a podcast in and of itself. But you know me, I like kind of to-the-point language. We're going to focus on three ways to learn how to better manage your emotion. And it's such an important skill to know you have. It gives you self-assurance and self-confidence to realize your feelings aren't going to get away from you. The listener email today is from someone who's strongly related to the fairly recent podcast on trauma bonding. She wanted to know a little bit more about it, and so I'm answering her question and talking about what I've learned both personally and professionally about trauma bonding. So thanks for being here. Sit back, relax, or do your chores or whatever you do when you listen to self-work, and we're going to be talking about managing your emotions. When I began thinking about doing an episode on emotional regulation, I discovered a ton of work out there about it with multiple theories and explanations. Most of them are way too academic for me to want to feature on self-work. But there are two terms that I thought I'd bring up to you. First, a term called emotional regulation. What does that mean? It's the ability to respond to the ongoing demands of experience with a range of emotions in a manner that is socially tolerable and sufficiently flexible to permit spontaneous reactions, as well as the ability to delay spontaneous reactions as needed. That's a mouthful. What that means is that you have a fairly broad range of emotions that you can connect with safely so that you can have things happen to you or do things yourself that cause certain things to happen, and you don't lose it. It catches my attention that the definition includes a manner that is socially tolerable, meaning your emotions, all of our emotions, have a cultural context. What may be tolerable in one culture would be misunderstood in another, which of course is very true. Then the second part of the definition deals with flexibility, being able to respond spontaneously, but at other times having the ability to wait where you don't overreact. Emotional regulation is also very similar to the term emotional intelligence, which I talked about in the intro. 
And again, it's the capacity to be aware of, control, and express one's emotions and to handle interpersonal relationships judiciously and empathetically. So it kind of seems that emotional intelligence or EQ speaks more to the point of how you also understand or interpret the emotions of others and how you respond to them. Maybe that's the difference. So according to Daniel Goleman, an American psychologist who helped to popularize emotional intelligence, there are five key elements to it. Self-awareness, self-regulation, motivation, empathy, and social skills. But today we're going to hone in mostly on two of these, self-awareness and self-regulation. And I've zeroed in on three actual ways to help you figure out where you stand there. There are three questions to ask. First, does one emotion govern you more than others? Number two, what are some actual things you can do to self-soothe or to learn how not to react to your emotions, but to respond to them? And three, what to do if you don't like the way you feel and want to change it? So let's talk about the first question. Does one emotion govern me more than others? Do you tend to feel one emotion much more readily than you do others? Does everything make you mad or afraid or sad? If you listed, and maybe you should actually try to do this, all the emotions you experience in one day, how many would there be and what would they be? Let's be clear here that I'm not necessarily talking to someone whose emotions are being heavily influenced by a state of depression or cyclic disorder like bipolar disorder, by PTSD, or some other mental illness. I think this information can be helpful for any of those people to listen to, but the flatness or stability of your emotions when you have a mental or affective disorder can be influenced by many factors, trauma, of course, being one of the chief. However, Michael Yapko, a leading researcher and author on depression, does make the point that depressive or anxious responses to the world can be learned by children as they absorb these behaviors and the feelings associated with them from their parents. He wrote a book called Hand Me Down Blues, which I'll actually have in the show notes. But here's an example of what I am talking about. I think I've used this metaphor before on self-work, but if you're like me, repetition is helpful. Let's try thinking first about your emotions as separate drops of rain falling on a mountain. Gradually, the water forms little rivulets, and then the rivulets begin to follow tracks or trails in the dirt formed by past rainfalls, and then even those come together. And pretty soon, the uniqueness of those individual drops of rain seem gone, and all you can see is a river or even a waterfall that holds all of those raindrops. So what I'll wonder with you is this. When you feel or if you feel mad or sad or anxious all the time, isn't this kind of what's happening? You're having emotions and they're gradually being condensed down into feelings that you're more comfortable with. You've either become more comfortable with that feeling or it can become almost an unconscious and immediate response. Your mindset, your emotional response seems to become more monolithic, always the same. Whatever individual feelings you had in the first place are just buried in the quantity of the rain and in what you've become quite accustomed into feeling rather than feeling anything else. You might say, well, that pisses me off all the time, or, well, that worries me all the time. I don't know what to do about anything. That's a feeling of more helplessness or being paralyzed. And those could be your responses to everything. So what can you do about this? Well, awareness is always first. Realize how pat your emotional response has become. Everyone knows that dad will get mad 
or that sister will brush you off or mom will take on the emotional burden. You get my drift. Then you can try to figure out what happened that caused you to close off all those other emotions and where one emotion now dominates your emotional life. I think of that as actually being only to paint with one or two colors, how boring that would be. Sometimes this simple awareness of this serves to remind you to allow other emotions in. But you may have to practice a bit for this to happen. Maybe you can talk to a good friend about how they perceive you. Do they see you as always sad or always happy, never allowing sadness? That's, of course, reminiscent of perfectly hidden depression in the form of what we call rigid positivity, right? I'll give you an example of my own. In my personal life, I often find myself wanting to stay away from feelings at times. Maybe it's because of what I do for a living, maybe my own vulnerability. Actually, I know what it is. It's because my mom and I had a far too close relationship and it's called enmeshment, actually. And so I learned to keep my feelings more private. That's another podcast. But my point is that I make jokes, especially using sarcasm, to hide behind. When I become more aware, I stop and ask myself, wait, if you weren't finding the funny in this, what are you really feeling? My friends know I do this, so will sometimes stop and look at me and say, now, why are you hiding behind a joke? It's my go-to. It's the emotional cloak I hang over myself to hide. Now, having a sense of humor is great, but not when it's overused. Being mad can be empowering. It can help you connect with your values, but not when it's the only thing you tend to feel. Again, that's monotonous, feeling the same feeling over and over. Of course, if it's gotten really bad, it could be depression. Or like we talked about with Dr. Yapko's work, it could be learned. But it could also be a habit, your go-to feeling response. And that can be changed if you catch yourself. So here's the question to ask yourself again. What would I be feeling about this if I weren't angry, sad, afraid? bored, making a joke, however you would fill in the blank. So it's a great question to ask yourself again, what would I be feeling about this if I weren't, and then fill in the blank. That awareness and your answer to it, at least if you're being honest with yourself, can be very eye-opening. I use that question a lot with my own patients, and as you can see, I need to ask it of myself often as well. Before we go on to the second and third questions, BetterHelp and I have an offer for you, and 2021 might be just the time you want to try this out for size. BetterHelp has now been a sponsor of Self Work for a few months, and I've been hearing how pleased you are with their services. I couldn't be more excited about that, as by now you know I'm a huge believer myself in the power of therapy. What is BetterHelp? It's an online therapy service that has earned the number one ranking for the quality of their service to their consumers. When you contact them, you are offered several different licensed professional therapists to choose from, all that have been vetted by BetterHelp. You can have sessions via video, text, or phone. And I found, because of course I checked it out before recommending it to you, that each therapist was very available, literally a text away and made some of the same therapeutic suggestions to me that I'd offer myself as a therapist. Here's an excerpt from a listener who wrote in, I'm a 23-year-old living in Brazil. I'm only writing this message in order to express my gratitude towards you and your podcast. Having anxiety disorder, I always felt like I needed therapy, but I was too anxious to start it. With self-work, not only I've learned some 
valuable insights about dealing with my condition, but also the basics of how therapy sessions work, which allowed me to finally get some courage to start it. With the coronavirus pandemic, I'd also been concerned about attending personal sessions, but then I learned about BetterHelp in your podcast, and it sounded just perfect for what I needed. I've been getting online counseling from BetterHelp for six weeks now, and I feel like it's been helping me a lot. That's just so wonderful to hear. And now, BetterHelp has a special offer for you. 10% off the first month of sessions if you use this link. Trybetterhelp.com slash selfwork. That's trybetterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash selfwork. I'm never more honored than hearing someone sought therapy after listening to self-work. And if self-work is helping you, maybe better help is your next step. So here's the second question to ask yourself if you're trying to learn to self-regulate your emotions. What are some actual things I can do to self-soothe or to learn how to not react to my emotions but to respond to them? You know, Mel Robbins has the famous count to five and then do something that she enthusiastically believes will get you into motion rather than sitting around and contemplating or procrastinating something. I think she's right. But the whole idea around this question or this technique I'm about to talk about is actually the opposite. You want to count to five and be aware of how you're feeling. And then if it's not going to be helpful, or as our definition of emotional intelligence would say, judicious or empathic, then waiting to respond is probably the best bet. Let's look at that word, judicious. What does that actually mean? When is an emotion judicious and when is it not? That actually sounds more like a mental thing rather than an emotional thing. Judicious means having or showing good sense or good judgment. Okay, well, not all feelings make sense. I'm afraid of heights, but that doesn't make good sense. I guess what this means is that if it doesn't seem like a rational feeling or response, and it's outside of a culture's understanding, I'd be wrong to teach my child never to get on a ladder or ride an escalator. That would be teaching an irrational emotional response to my child based on my own non-judicious feeling. Again, that's a lot of words. We can obviously disagree about what emotions are judicious and which are not. In fact, we have an extreme amount of that conflict right now in the United States. To me, the most potent and helpful conversations that are occurring are the ones where people aren't reacting but responding, waiting to hear, trying to understand, and see things from a different point of view. That's the empathy and social skill that are both part of emotional intelligence. But I don't want to get into politics here. I'm no expert, and this is simply not the forum. But even with you internally, if you wait... If you count to five and you respond, not react, maybe count to 10 or 20 or the next day, then you'll have that time to assess yourself. Did I get triggered by something? I've done episodes on triggering. I'm going to have those in your show notes. You also want to look at, is my reaction an overreaction or an underreaction? That actual episode number 12, one of my first ones, has been listened to by thousands of people. I'll give you a quick example of overreacting and underreacting to triggers. Maybe someone pulls in front of you in traffic and you get into a rage. That's an overreaction. You're getting triggered by something from your past that's leading you to get that mad. I had a man years ago whose road rage turned out to be about his bitterness about his wife having an affair. And he would say to himself, no one's going to ever get the best of me again. His road rage actually didn't start until after that had happened. 
Now, that might seem strange, but believe me, it does happen. Or an underreaction. Here again, the person is pulling out in front of you, and you say to yourself, oh, I was probably the one in the wrong. That's an underreaction. And again, there's a likely trigger. Maybe you got in trouble for being angry when you were a child, or you're in a relationship right now where you're getting ridiculed. Triggers can be anything and everywhere. And you can get better at recognizing when they're there. But let's also talk briefly about soothing yourself, calming yourself down, allowing anger to abate, letting sorrow go. So many people tell me they don't know how to calm themselves, that once an emotion has taken root, then it just is bad news. First, you have to want to do it, to calm down, to release. I'll go back to the idea that if you hold on tightly to an emotion or some response habit like my humor, it will cover up other feelings you might have. So calming down or release is deciding not to hide, deciding to see what else is there. It's vulnerability. We live in an age where teachings about finding calm are numerous. I had Shan Vanderleek on a few weeks ago, and we practiced the calming breath. There are calming apps. Music and certain smells can calm. Some of you tell me that listening to this podcast, listening to my voice, is calming. That's good. Some people, of course, use substances of all kinds to calm down. And, of course, once in a while, that's fine. But having that as your only go-to and then developing an addiction to that form of escape is very self-destructive. I myself find reading very calming and gives me some time away from whatever I'm trying to sort through. Exercise or doing something that takes a lot of exertion can release feelings. I use that as well, so do others. I've had lots of people throw glass at brick walls when they need to release anger. It's really helpful, something about the sound of the crash. Depending on where you live, there are different things you can try. There are rooms opening up all over the country where you can go just beat the crap out of something. I'm not sure about that one, but, you know, it's out there. But it has to be your decision to seek that release because it will be more vulnerable. We don't have a lot of time for the third question, so I'll go quickly. Number three is, what do I do if I don't like the way I feel and I want to change it? The therapeutic technique that I would use here and that you can use yourself is called reframing. Think of a picture you don't like or maybe even you think is depressing. Put a new frame around it and voila, it seems like a different picture. Or at least, sometimes. That's what you can do when you want to have a different emotional reaction to something. Maybe the best example I can think of is this. Let's say you tell yourself that your mother-in-law never acknowledges all you do for your kids, her grandkids, never compliments how you parent or what a caring, lovely home you create. If you frame that hurt with, she's purposely trying to hurt me, then that hurt will have staying power. Every time it happens, you'll get more hurt. But if you frame it as, or try to understand it as, you know, when I think about it, the only person she ever gives that kind of attention to is her own daughter. You may begin to see the problem differently. Maybe she has to affirm herself what a good mom she was or is, so she doesn't pass that kind of attention or praise out to her daughter-in-laws. Or maybe her daughter really needs her a lot. Her own life is quite chaotic. So all your mother-in-law's attention is on the child who needs her or is still a relative child herself. Do you see how telling yourself a different, very plausible story about a situation may give you a different emotional reaction? It's called reframing. It's not that it necessarily makes it pleasant, 
that can help you see things differently. Maybe not take something so personally. And that can be very helpful. I use this a lot in couples work because a lot of the time the story you're telling yourself about your partner's behavior, if you reframe it slightly and ask yourself the question, what do I know about my partner that would cause this behavior that has nothing to do with me? That can be a very helpful question and reframe the way you see your partner. So you're helping yourself have a kinder, less judgmental and less personalized way of understanding someone else's behavior and maybe even your own. So here are the three things that you can ask if you're trying to learn how to govern or manage your emotions differently. First, what would I be feeling if I weren't feeling whatever it is? You can look for the triggers that are underneath and wait, not react, but respond. And you can find ways to self-soothe, to calm and or release painful emotions. And third, you can reframe. Begin telling yourself another story about the why of something, and you're likely to have a healthier emotional response. And of course, find that self-confidence and self-assurance we talked about in the intro. Today's listener mail was from a listener that really identified with the episode on trauma bonding. So here's her question. Hello, Dr. Margaret. If you could do more on the trauma bond and enmeshment series or the podcast that you did, it would be greatly appreciated. I listened to that one and literally my husband covers everything in that podcast. So um, I'm going to tune into the angry therapist and um, I'd love to hear more from you on this on this topic. Thank you. I actually got a lot of questions about this episode and will do my best to encapsulate my answers so those of you who want to know more will know more. The dynamic of trauma bonding has itself been around forever as two people who are creating a chaotic relationship together find it very difficult to admit that they're bad together and they may break up and then get back and break up and get back. You'll even hear the phrase, they'll say, we're like oil and water, but there's still this energy between them that is quite potent and quite destructive. There was a great article in Well and Good that talks about some signs that a trauma bond is forming. There are about six or seven of them. The relationship is moving at an accelerated pace. You feel very close even though you haven't known each other for very long. You make huge life changes for a relatively new relationship, like maybe you move or you give up seeing your family or something. You put time and effort into the romantic relationship at the cost of friendships and family and other relationships. You have an extreme fear of leaving the relationship, and you feel like they're the only one who can fulfill your needs. If you're checking off boxes, then maybe you're in a trauma bond or you're getting into a trauma bond. So how is this different from like a battered women's syndrome? I don't think there is much of a difference except not all trauma bonds involve physical abuse. Many are much more emotionally manipulative than physically or sexually abusive. So let's say you can check off almost all of the above signs of a trauma bond, or you can when you think about the beginning of a relationship you're in. So why aren't these a signal that your own life and values are being compromised? Well, I've been honest that my second marriage was definitely a trauma bond for me and him. 
And for me, I didn't have much of a self back then. Even though I was in my late 20s and very early 30s, I was only beginning to form my own ideas and values, and I was carrying a lot of shame. So I was looking for the easy way to make things work. And I was still looking for a partner to help me to find myself. And so the easy way, I thought, was to stick with the relationship I had. There are a couple of points I want to make about this that hopefully may be helpful or refreshing or something new to consider. I love an old book called Coming Apart by Daphne Kingma. It's been revised several times, but actually has been in continuous press since 1987. That's remarkable. The point that sticks out most for me is that she says that looking back over your relationship, there is an event, a disappointment, even a shock about your partner, about your relationship that you somehow rationalized, discounted, ignored, or underplayed. Your gut was going off saying, pay attention, but you didn't. I can remember those exact moments in almost all of my failed relationships and certainly my marriages, but I didn't want to pay attention. I was headed in my own direction, and I wasn't accepting any information that suggested it wasn't a good direction in which to go. I read this book after my second marriage ended, and I think it is important to try to help you not make those mistakes again, to start paying more attention to your gut and to realize, oh, I rationalized that. I didn't pay attention. Intentionally, I didn't pay attention. But there's another point that I think is very important. When you're considering ending a trauma bond, when you finally think enough is enough, that move is not going to make you happy. I think often people wait for the positive feelings to go away before they act, and yet a trauma bond is a cycle. It gets headily wonderful and then awful. When I divorced, at least at first, I was devastated. I was incredibly lonely. My emotions were still extremely tied into the relationship. I was addicted to the relationship. I still, quote-unquote, loved him as I was divorcing. And I did really stupid things because of my confusion. And those stupid things made it really tough and even more confusing than it was. But I made the decision to leave because of my growing recognition that the emotional instability I was living with was something that was incredibly destructive for me. I had to get out. But that's what I've seen other people struggle with. This idea that if what they're terming love is still there, if there are good times, then how can he or she leave? And of course, if you think part of the drama that you've experienced comes from you, which you do usually have a role in it, then that strong sense of responsibility can keep you in that relationship. So those are two points that I hope are helpful. One from the book Coming Apart, that if you really go back and dissect your relationship, you'll see, oh yeah, there was that time I told myself, well, he'll change or she'll change. He didn't mean to do that. That happened a long time ago. Whatever you told yourself while your gut was going, pay attention. And then this other idea that somehow you have to no longer be in love before you end the relationship, before you get out of that trauma bond. Those feelings take many, many years to actually work through and release yourself from. It's hard work, but you can do it. Thank you so much for being here at Self Work with me today. 
those of you who have left ratings and reviews for Perfectly Hidden Depression, my book on the highly controlled life of people who try to look perfect, but who are hiding, maybe even unconsciously hiding, great pain. I appreciate those ratings and reviews more than you know. And those of you who've left your reviews here on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening to the Self Work Podcast, I just smile when I read those. I started Self Work because I wanted to help people approach the whole idea of getting therapy more clearly and with more education. So when I hear that that's what's happening, it just makes me smile, like I said a few minutes ago. You can reach me a lot of ways. DrMargaretRutherford.com is my website. And if you subscribe there, you'll get a weekly newsletter with a blog post and this weekly podcast within it. It's a really easy way of keeping up with me. You can email me at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com. I read all of your emails. I can't get to all of them all the time, but I'll do my best. You can also join my Facebook group, which is Facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. It's a closed group meaning that only the people within the group can see that you're a member and any of your responses. I love that group. It's diverse. We have so many people from so many different countries, and it's wonderful sharing our experiences. I hope this episode has been helpful to you. Thank you for being a part of it. Please take very good care. Stay safe and healthy. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.